Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. We are in week four of an initiative that we're calling First Allegiance. And the goal is to, as a body, try to avoid some of the trappings of the cultural and political division and polarization that we find ourselves in. Um, We love our country, and we're grateful that we get to live here. But our first allegiance is to Jesus. We are Americans, but we are Christians first. And so during uh, this season, we are walking through what we're calling 10 commitments for first allegiance living. What does it look like to live as dual citizens of Central Oregon and of the kingdom of God? The 10 commitments are worship, love of neighbor, image of God, biblical wisdom, fruitful speech, humble learning, removing the log, biblical justice, peacemaking, and loving our enemies. Uh, Those are listed on a giant document where you entered this morning. And if you haven't yet had the opportunity to sign your name to the First Allegiance Commitment, I would encourage you to do that this morning. It's an opportunity for us as a community before God to once again pledge our loyalty to Jesus and to his kingdom above all else in this crazy moment that we find ourselves in. And so, so far we've talked about what it means to live a life of worship, neighbor love, and to honor the image of God in every human everywhere. This morning, we're going to dive in to what the Bible has to say and specifically what Jesus has to say about this thing called wisdom. Biblical wisdom. Before we do that, I want to take just to a moment to once again acknowledge that um, if you've been part of this journey at Antioch for the last six months or so, that we've been touching on some pretty heavy stuff. And last week, even, we talked about abortion. And I'm guessing you that some of you are worried about where we're going today. Um, I want to simply confess before you that it's really hard to be a pastor right now. I'm connected to lots of pastors around the city and around the country, and I don't know of a single pastor of a church that would say they're doing well at the moment. In the midst of COVID and social unrest and political division, um, they didn't train us for this in seminary, okay? So we're all figuring it out as we go. And specifically when it comes to preaching, um, I want to acknowledge that sometimes it's hard to discern how much we should be engaging what's happening in the world at a particular moment on Sundays and how much we should try to create a space where we step back or rise above the noise. Um, I really like the idea of this being the one place each week where we gather and all of the, the chaos of the world is set aside and we're able to come and call our attention to Jesus. That is central uh, to what we do. But I also think 
that there are times when it's appropriate or even necessary for us as the church, rather than to tune out what's happening in the world, to pay attention and to ask what is the faithful witness that God is calling us to bear in this moment. When there's cultural conversations that are happening, when people are asking hard questions and the world's on fire and then you show up at church and some guy's like, hey, let's talk about Ephesus. You're kind of like, really? Like, does our faith in Jesus actually have anything to say to the real world? That's really what we're talking about this morning. But just so you know, our goal isn't to be provocative or edgy or political or controversial or anything like that. Our goal is to be faithful. Faithful to God and to his word, faithful to Jesus and to his kingdom. And my goal is to be faithful to this congregation and to pay attention to what God is wanting to say to us and do among us and how he is calling us to conform our lives by faith and obedience to be a faithful presence of Jesus here in this city and around the world. Which means that some sermons are going to be sweet and some are going to be spicy. But I want to do my best with the input of other pastors and elders and mentors in my life to be guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit to say whatever God is saying through his word. And I'm committed to you guys. I'm planning on doing this with you here for the next 30 years, whether you like it or not. And so we're going to figure out how to do this together. So thank you for trusting me. And today we're not going to hit head on at least any, uh, anything controversial. You can go back to Facebook when we're done uh, for that. Today we're looking at the story of the wise and foolish builders in Matthew chapter 7. And we're talking about how this idea of wisdom is central to what it means to pledge our first allegiance to Jesus. And I would argue that this is particularly important in the age of human history in which we are living. You know that historians have divided uh, the eras of, of world history into various ages. We know about the Stone Age, the Middle Ages, the Age of Discovery, the Age of Enlightenment, the Machine Age. The age we are currently living in uh, goes by several names, but one of them and the most widely agreed upon, is the information age. We are so used to it that we don't even realize how overwhelmed we are with information every day, every hour, every minute. And in fact, um, sociologists estimate that since around 1971, the amount of information in the world has been doubling every two years. The amount of information in the world doubles every two years, which means that like, as of right now, half of the world's information was generated between the time of Adam and Eve in 2018, and the other half has been generated in the last two years. This is a very strange time uh, to be alive the information age. There's a cultural theorist I appreciate named Neil Postman who wrote a book several years ago called Amusing Ourselves to Death in which he introduces the concept of the information to action ratio. 
information to action ratio. And the idea is that up until just a few hundred years ago, our society had a very high information to action ratio. Before, obviously, social media and email and computers and even before TV and radio and telephones and even before the telegraph, there really wasn't this thing that we would call the news. News was hyper-localized. There was plenty of literature and history and philosophy in the world, but when you talk about information as in happenings in the world, things that are going on uh, in the very recent history, there really wasn't an easy way to get the news outside of your own little village or town. Um, Most of the news that you got, information that was happening in the world, was pertinent to your life and your community, highly localized, and therefore most likely highly actionable. So, for example, a few hundred years ago, news would come in the form of somebody pounding on your door in the middle of the night to, telling, to tell you that your neighbor's barn is on fire. Okay? They're not just trying to loop you in so that you're up to date on what's happening in the world. That news demands action. And so the action would be, you don't just go back to sleep and maybe post something about stop barn fires hashtag or something like that. The action was you'd grab your bucket and you'd run down to Farmer John's and help put out the fire. Most of human history has had a very high information to action ratio. But things have been rapidly changing for the past few hundred years. And Neil Postman claims that that happened earlier than we might think, before TV or computer or radio or telephone, but all the way back to the invention of the telegraph, where all of a sudden you were able to, for the first time ever, you were able to receive a message about what was happening on the other side of the world instantaneously. That was a brand new reality for humans, to hear about which country won that battle, or some new discovery or development, or some new king that was put in place, and the recipient of that news has nothing they can do with that information. There is nothing actionable. They're simply receiving new information for the first time in human history. So Postman writes it like this. Let me just read a couple sentences. He says, The tie between information and action has been severed. Information is now a commodity that can be bought and sold or used as a form of entertainment or worn like a garment to enhance one's status. It comes indiscriminately, directed at no one in particular, disconnected from usefulness. We are glutted with information, drowning in information. We have no control over it and we don't know what to do with it. Postman was even writing before we all had little computers in our pockets or on our wrists. And things have only accelerated since then. That we are now consuming unbelievable amounts of non-actionable information every single day. We get news updates and reminders in real times. Some of you guys are checking your fantasy scores as we speak. There's nothing you can do about it at this point, but you still need the information, 
right? Election results, whatever it is, we are well-informed people, the best informed humans that have ever lived. But what has happened is that our minds and our bodies have been trained to consume information that doesn't demand any action from us. And so I want to argue this morning that as we now live as part of a society with a very low information action to ratio, which if you spell it out, makes us all liars, a low information action ratio would put a smack dab in the crosshairs of those who Jesus is speaking to in the final words of the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to look at these, this final illustration or metaphor that Jesus gives as he closes out his most famous set of teachings. Matthew 7, 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. It's a familiar passage to many of us, especially those of us that grew up in church or Sunday school. And you may even remember the cute little song about the rains come down and the floods come up. But if you actually pay attention, this isn't a very cute little kid's song. Jesus closes his sermon with a deeply serious and sobering warning to his hearers. And so let's unpack this metaphor for a little bit and see what it is that Jesus might want to teach us today. We'll start with the basics. In this teaching, a house is a metaphor for life. That we are each building our life on some kind of foundation. Every one of us is building our house. We are building our life, the one life that we get. We are choosing what it's going to look like. Life that's full of work and relationships and practices and how you spend your money and how you spend your time and how you identify and who you hang out with, all these different parts of our lives. It's been said that how we spend our days is how we spend our years, which is how we spend our lives. Every single one of us is building our life. And some of those lives look like mansions. And sometimes we feel like my life is a little shack. But every single one of us has a house, a life that we are building. And we're building it upon a foundation of one kind or another. The place or the thing that we are building our life on is its foundation. And maybe we have a well-examined foundation. 
maybe we could say these are the specific principles or values or beliefs on which I am building my life. I am making my decisions. I am stewarding my time. I am carrying myself according to these principles, values, and beliefs. So we have a thoughtful and a well-examined foundation. Others of us are building our lives on a foundation that hasn't been examined at all. It's an assumed foundation. That it's not that we have no foundation, it's that our foundation we have not taken a serious look at. And we're simply building, we're simply responding, we're simply reacting to whatever life throws our way. And so maybe we're just cruising along hoping that things go well, or maybe we're carefully building our life upon a particular foundation, but every single one of us is building our life upon one foundation or another. It's the first observation. Secondly, in Jesus' teaching, the storm that comes is a metaphor for hardship, pain, suffering, or loss. The storm is a metaphor for hardship, pain, suffering, and loss. Whatever era of history you're living in, whether it's the information age or the bronze age, life will always have its storms. Some of those storms are universal and affect billions of people, something like COVID-19, and others of those storms are highly individual and unique to us in our story. Some of those storms are the result of something that other people have done, and some of the storms are self-inflicted, we might say. Some storms are the result of sin and evil and wickedness. And some storms are simply the result of the fact that we're broken people living in a broken world. And sometimes the weather just sucks. Some storms are external they deal with circumstances, death, disease, tragedy, violence, whatever it is. And other storms are internal. They deal with our own hearts or minds, anxiety, depression, fear, hatred, bitterness, whatever it is. So every single one of us is building our life upon a foundation. And every single one of our lives will come in contact with storms. Some storms will be small, some will be great, but it is part of the deal. Both houses face storms. It rains on the house on the rock and the house on the sand. And I just want to pause for a moment and make sure that we are noting and paying serious attention to the fact that Jesus is not saying that if we try hard to live a good Christian life, that we will somehow be immune from storms. Jesus is not promising that we are faithful to, if we are faithful to him and follow his teachings in obedience, that life is going to go well for us. 
that our life will be free from rain or floods. He never says anything like that. In fact, not only does following Jesus not guarantee you a life free from storms, for Jesus' first hearers, they would have known that there are some storms in life that are actually guaranteed because we follow Jesus. There will be times, and there have been throughout much of history and around much of the world, where following Jesus means that we are voluntarily taking up our cross and bearing a burden of suffering in his footsteps. So be careful and do not let anyone sell you a version of Christianity that promises a life without storms. That is not the gospel. We're all building a life on a foundation. Storms will come to each and every house. Both houses in this teaching face storms. Tragedy, loss, suffering, pain, death, sorrow comes upon both houses. But in the end, only one house survives. So the difference is, these two houses, one of them stands and endures through life's worst moments, and the other one collapses. The flood will come, and when it does, it reveals what your life is built on. It's oftentimes not until the storm comes that we see what was underneath our house the whole time. Storms expose what we've built our life upon. Now here's what's interesting. Which house survives the storm? The house on the rock, the house on the sand. What do they represent? Jesus doesn't say that the rock represents a good person and that the sand represents a bad person. What he says is that one house represents a wise person and the other represents a foolish person. This is a teaching about wisdom. And Jesus doesn't define wisdom here, but he describes it. That wise is the person who pays attention to what they're building their life on. Wisdom looks like choosing your foundation carefully. And foolishness looks like choosing your foundation carelessly. Now, this is pretty countercultural or counterintuitive for so many of us. Because we rarely stop to think about the foundation. Even if we think about actual literal houses, Jen and I bought a house that was built in 1994. And for the last five, six years, we've been working on it, fixing it up, replacing parts, updating parts, adding things. 
And if you come over, I'd love to show you like, hey, check out the kitchen that we did or check out our deck or check out the front yard. And people are generally excited to see the things uh, that we're showing them. I have never said, hey, come down in the crawl space. Let me show you the foundation. Let me show you how sturdy <laughs> the, these, these walls are. Let me show you the concrete beneath. Nobody even thinks about it. We look at life above the surface, and that's how we define value, beauty, goodness so often. But the truth is, no matter how beautiful the house is on top, without a solid foundation, it's going to crumble. And all your work will be in vain. And so wise is the person who pays careful attention to the foundation on which they are building their life. But Jesus doesn't stop there, not even close. He doesn't leave that up for interpretation. But he then offers us, here is the one rock-solid foundation on which wisdom builds her house. The wise house builder is the one who builds their life on obedience to Jesus and his word. Whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who builds their house on the rock. The wise person builds their life on obedience to Jesus and his word, and the foolish person is the one who builds their life on something else. Now here's what's interesting. As a kid, and even some of the commentaries I've read on this passage recently, we're told that the wise man who builds his house on the rock is a metaphor for Christians. And the foolish man who builds his house on the sand is a metaphor for non-Christians. And so Christians are the ones who are building our house on the rock, and non-Christians are building it on something else. But a plain reading of this story reveals something much different. That is not even close to the language Jesus uses or the point that Jesus is making. This parable is about two houses that on the outside or from a distance appear to be the same. From the surface up, it may be hard at first to notice any differences because the differences exist beneath the surface. But Jesus isn't comparing Christians to non-Christians. What he's actually doing is contrasting two kinds of Christians. The true disciple and the false disciple. The wise person and the foolish person according to Jesus, may look pretty similar on the surface. But when the storm comes, when things get real, when the foundation is exposed, you see that there's a very big difference between these two types of Christians. John Stott said it like this, that both read the Bible, both go to church, both listen to sermons, both buy Christian literature, 
The reason you often cannot tell the difference between them is that the deep foundations of their lives are hidden from view. So Jesus is preaching this sermon to a crowd and he's saying, all of you are hearing my words. All of you are associating yourselves with me. All of you are gathered around me. All of you are recipients of the scripture. He doesn't use the word Christian. He never does. But we might say, okay, we all appear, to, we are all those who identify as Christians. But Jesus says, here's the difference. Some of you will hear my words and put them into practice. And others of you will just hear my words. And so again, Jesus doesn't define wisdom for us, but he describes it. A wise person is one who hears the word of God which we could start by giving ourselves a round of applause right now. You are here. You are wise for coming to a space where you will get to hear and to sing and to pray and to receive the word of God. That is wise. But it doesn't stop there. Secondly, the wise person receives the word of God and puts it into action. Not just hears, but obeys. So the wise person is the one who builds their life on Jesus and his word. You start to see how problematic it is as those who live in the information age in a society that's trained us to have a very low information to action ratio. The amount of content, information, Words, signals, advertisements, messages that we consume day in and day out that our minds just kind of absorb, that we don't even feel convicted or tempted, so to speak, to put these things into action. We just continue to listen. More podcasts, more documentaries, more social media posts, more blogs, more websites, more TV shows, more movies, more music, more and more text messages, emails, whatever. And I think Jesus would say to us today, be careful as those who are used to operating with a low information to action ratio that you don't take me and my teachings and put them in that same category of nice ideas, maybe even that you agree with, but that you don't allow to transform the way you live and what you actually do. And so, friends, our question is, what are we going to do with what we have heard? What does it look like for us to take Jesus and his word, this passage, this sermon, this book, this entirety of scripture, and all the other ways that God has taken it upon himself to reveal himself to us and speak to us, it's not enough just to hear it. That's not going to build a life that endures. We have to hear it and we have to obey. We have to put it into practice. And Jesus seems to know that this is going to be hard. 
that we are going to be tempted to build our lives on other things other than him. And he says, I'm warning you. Be faithful to me. Follow me. Pledge your allegiance to me even when it's hard, even when it's not popular, even when there's so many distractions and temptations to the right or to the left. Will you follow me above all else? We've spent a little bit of time critiquing the idea or the ideology of Christian nationalism or nationalism in general, which when we talk ideology, we talk about those things that we are prone to build our lives upon. And I would simply say this, not just about the United States, but people that live of any country or any nation in the world, they will not last forever. And we, as citizens of heaven, belong to a kingdom that will never end. And so to place your hope and your trust and your identity in your vision for the United States is to build your house upon the sand. And to place your hope in Jesus and in his unshakable kingdom is to build your house upon the rock. And so my question, again, is what are you going to do with Jesus and his word? Are you going to just continue to absorb information? Or are you going to put it into practice? I want to ask you a question as we close, and I want to ask you to consider this question prayerfully. I want you to ask Jesus, what is the courageous step you are calling me to take today? What is the courageous step you, Jesus, are calling me to take today? What does it look like to take what Jesus has said? His invitation, his gospel, his kingdom, his life. Not just to hear it, not just to believe it, not just to agree with it. But to put it into action. And Jesus says, this is the wise person who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. The one who does this builds their house upon the rock. And no matter what suffering, what trial, what loss, what pain comes your way or my way or our way as a country or as a world, it won't be easy, it won't be fun. But he is the rock on which we build our house and his kingdom will never end.